third sermon on, uh, on these five sermons on the solas. Now, just a reminder that our purpose here is not to go back and refight the Reformation, God forbid. You know, the Catholic Church has changed a lot, and so have we. And, um, uh, but it's more as a renewal movement. It's a time to go back and reflect on what happened at a time in history when the church was struggling and, and going through a very deep crisis of faith and and, um, and, and what happened out of the Protestant Reformation was this amazing revival and reformation of, of basic gospel belief. And, um, and people's lives were being changed, and it obviously changed the world uh, and the way in which it manifests itself. So we're praying for the same kind of thing in our day. So it's not so much to go back and rehash all the debates, but it is to go back and say, now what was it that God was doing in, in our brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers' lives? And the best way we came up to do that is, is what we call the solas. Um, and then keep in mind that we've already done sola scriptura, or that is scripture alone. We've done sola gratia, scripture, you know, grace alone. And today we'll look at so, sola fide, which is faith alone. And to be sure, the focus here is on the alone part, the sola. The debate never has been, just so we get rid of the straw men. Uh, the debate has never been uh, within the Protestants, Catholics, or anyone for that matter, uh, is the word of God a rule of faith and practice? Is that an unnecessary rule of, God, of faith and practice? We'd say, of course, everybody would agree with that. The Reformation was about, is it the only rule of faith and practice? Or are there other authorities that can bind conscience, like church and private revelation? Same thing with grace. It was never an issue that grace was a necessity for salvation. We all agree. The question was, sola's grace. Is it grace and my own merits somehow? That was the big issue. And now we find the same issue with respect to faith. The debate was never, must one believe in Jesus Christ to be saved? Of course you do. The question was about assurance. The question was, how can we then uh, in, enjoy in, in the, uh, the grace of the gospel? And the question especially was, it, is it faith plus what? And the way that particularly it was framed back in the day, it was the question of what is faith? Now, this is really important. What is faith? That's the question I hear a lot today. That is very relevant. I'll hear people who come, many of you have come and said, I just don't understand faith. You know, we live in this age where, where we've reduced facts. See, what happened after the Enlightenment? Was, was the, I mean, after the Protestant Reformation or around it and during it, but afterwards, is the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment had this profound, profound impact on how we use the word fact. A fact through the Enlightenment became only that which we could empirically verify or the scientific method. A fact became something that, that would start. You, you can't have a fact unless you can comprehend all of something. There was no room for mystery anymore. And so therefore, a fact became what we can, we have to start with something that we irrefutably know exists. I am. I exist. And thus the Cartesian revolution happened. We start with I am. And we work our way from that into what other things we can know irrefutably based on I am. And so it became a very experiential basis for fact. And subjectivism came in, and positivism came in. All these big philosophical words, but the issue was faith. 
can we think of faith in a world that has no room or category? Faith becomes just a value, a personal and private value. That, And so I know some of your struggles. I know that my struggle has been, you know, how can, how, I've heard people come in and say, Pastor, I, just, I don't even know how people can know what, how, how can you believe something? How, how do you get belief? You know, in this world where facts have been reduced to empirically verified sorts of things. Well, in many ways, that was happening then, too, in a different way. You see, the question, again, was not, must we believe in Jesus Christ to be saved? Everyone agrees, yes. It's a sufficiency. And the way it looks now is, what is faith? Is true and saving faith belief in Christ? But if it's real faith, wouldn't it be belief in Christ plus the works that that manifests in my life? In other words, there's an old saying, you know, that uh, we're saved by grace through faith alone, though faith is never alone. Now, that's saying something very different than what was being said in the Reformation. See, that's saying that we're saved by grace through faith alone, Therefore, we would not examine our works that are given to us because of our faith as a basis for whether we have faith or not. We're saved by grace through faith alone. Even though the same power that enabled me to have faith is the power that's going to enable me to continue to persevere in that faith and grow in faithfulness and therefore become more and more godly and less and less sinful, something like that. Do you see what I'm saying? So it's true that that true faith in Jesus Christ, the power of that faith will work itself out in continuing to work itself out and giving us more and more grace to be sanctified and to be made holy and to do good works. But that's a different thing from saying we're saved by grace through faith and we judge faith by its works. See that? Well, that's what was happening. And so into that world entered John Calvin, this great French reformer. He wrote a little treatise called The Necessity of Reforming the Church in 1543. And one of the two questions that inspired the Reformation, according to John Calvin in this little booklet, was this. The question was, and you had it earlier in front of you, what is the ground upon which the consciences of people must rest their hope of salvation? He thought that question drove the whole Reformation. It was about conscience. And how do we resolve our conscience that feels guilty? And how can we ever be set free from that fear of God's condemnation and therefore the condemnation of other people? He went on to say this, just to help you understand the soup that people were, 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 were drinking then. He went, there was a most pestilent error regarded as one of the principal articles of the Roman faith. It said that believers ought to be perpetually in suspense and uncertainty as to their interest in God's divine favor. In other words, it was taught as a doctrine that one must necessarily be in suspense. That our true assurance of of faith would not come until we are finally perfected in glory. And therefore the Christian was meant to live in this life with a kind of suspense, in suspense as to whether or not they're in divine favor, And thus, of course, faith, you see what just happened there? Faith, to be faith, is measured by its works, and this set off all sorts of problems. 
According to John Calvin, as he reflected on this, he says the power of faith was completely extinguished. The benefits of Christ's purchase completely destroyed. It threw us back upon conjecture to be tossed like reeds shaken by the wind. And it is not surprising that after they had once founded their hope of salvation on the merits of works, that they plunged into all this absurdity. He's talking about the kinds of things that happened in the Middle East church. People giving money to the church in order to, to purchase a merit in order to be credited to their account. People who were told to do these certain rituals, and that became a merit. And it was basically a meritocracy in terms of our salvation. Now, you and I all know, yes, we all agreed that faith was necessary in salvation. But if in this chain link of, of events that happens for us to be saved, if even one chain link in the whole chain rests on my works, then that becomes the weakest point of that chain. And that's what was happening. So the question is then, where did Calvin, and then I'm going to tell you a little more about Luther today. You're going to hear Luther's story. But where did they go to relieve these troubled consciences? And no one had a more troubled conscience than Martin Luther. Well, would you know that they went to these very passages? These passages you just heard read, Romans 1 and Romans 3, they were the passages that turned Luther upside down. And really, you could say these passages were the answer to the, to the question of the Protestant Reformation. And so I want to retrieve that for us today. I want to go very briefly through these passages and help you go through how they began to see them in a way they had never seen them before. Let's start with Romans 1. For there he starts, Paul starts off with, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now think about that. I'm not ashamed. What's the opposite of being ashamed? I would boast. One of the con consistent themes through Romans is this idea of boasting. And everywhere through Romans, Paul is telling you, we can't boast, we can't boast, we can't boast. But he begins saying, I boast in one thing. Stated in the positive, in the negative, I am not ashamed of one thing. And that is the gospel. The gospel. Now think about what it would mean to not be ashamed of something. It would mean, for instance, that, that we would not be afraid. We would, we would understand that we are dealing with something that, that I can be so confident in, that it's for everyone, not just a sect of Jews or a, a sect of people. It's for everyone, this, this, this gospel. We would believe that it's the best and most important thing that I would ever want to have in life and that my friends would want. To not be ashamed of the gospel means I'm going to be eager to understand the gospel as the very most important thing that people are looking for. And that's exactly how Paul would have understood it. You see, Paul here is, is talking about a gospel. Then you ask, well, what does he mean by the gospel? Well, notice what he's going to say. For it is the righteousness of God, of power of God, I'm, I'm sorry, it was the, it's the power of God unto salvation Wherein he's going to say the righteousness of God is revealed. Let's stop there. That's where Luther really got in trouble. You see, Paul was familiar with all of redemptive history. And you have to understand that salvation, this word salvation, meant that there would be a great day when God would come to earth and there would be brought, when he comes, real justice. We hear a lot of people crying for justice. There would be justice. Now the question is, whose side of justice are you on? 
This is where Luther began to struggle. Am I on this side or this side of justice? But listen to the way that the Old Testament would speak of this great day. For instance, Psalms 98.2, the Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of all nations. Now, righteous, this righteousness, again, it can go one of two ways. It's going to be the righteousness of God or the justice of God that could bring about God's justified wrath against sin and evil, or it could be the righteousness of God that could bring out the, the God's grace and mercy upon those who are righteous. This word righteousness needs to be talked about, because here it is, the righteousness of God revealed. That's how he's defining salvation, which is the power of the gospel. This righteousness of God, the word righteousness actually is the same word that you could translate to English, justice or just. So for instance, you're going to see even in this Romans, the English translation or, or use of the different forms of this Greek word can come out as righteousness or it can come out as justice. So when you hear this phrase, the righteousness of God revealed, and if you are an Old Testament scholar, you know that that could mean a great day of wrath or it could mean a great day of mercy. You don't know which. At least you know both are going to come, but where am I? Luther engages this as a man of a sincere conscience, drinking the soup of faith. And so when it says, and then the passage will go on to say what? By faith for faith. Actually, I think it's rather by faith to faith. But the point is, is there's this thing that's right there in the passage that says by faith. But remember, what was Luther listening to? The soup of his culture? Faith can only be measured by works. True faith can only be measured by works. Now think about what that means. Do you have faith? Let me, I'll tell you a little true story. When I was a student here, a uh, graduate student, um, there was a great professor um, and scholar. I won't mention his name. He's, a lot of stuff he's written has been very good stuff. But he was doing a lecture, and I went up to him after the lecture and said, uh, Professor, uh, tell me, he was talking about this issue of, of, of the gospel and grace. And I said, so just assume you're a pastor. I wasn't a pastor at the time. I was a graduate student. So, just, so you're a pastor, I said, assuming that posture. And someone walks into your study and says, uh, Professor or Pastor, uh, how can I know if I have faith? What would you tell him? And his answer was, well, ask him, does he love his neighbor? That sends shivers down my spine. I mean, I'm looking at you right now. I know I don't love you the way the law tells me to love you. I struggle with using more money than I need to use. There are people in this room that could need that money more than I use. I'm just going to tell you that right now. I struggle with that. I struggle with love all over the place. I struggle with that. To love my neighbor as myself, honestly, can any of you say you do that? Perfectly? You see what happened? This is the world of Martin Luther. And so when he read that we're saved by faith for faith, he heard faith that is measured by works. It scared him to death. Here's what he said. He says, but I, and this is after he read this passage that I'm reading right now. 
But I, a blameless monk that I was, and he means by that he was in good standing as a monk. He, he, he'd been, you know, ordained the whole thing. He was, nothing was wrong with him publicly. I, a blameless monk that I was, felt that before God I was a sinner with an extremely troubled conscience. I couldn't be sure that God was appeased, satisfied, it's an important word, I want you to hear that. That God, his righteousness that is, was satisfied by my attempts at satisfaction. You're going to hear a word in a minute called propitiation, used here in Romans. He's talking about that. He says, I did not love. Did you hear that? I do not love. No, rather I even hated the just God who punishes sinners. Have you ever hated God? Have you ever felt that anger? In some ways, it's kind of a good thing. <laughs> at least you're believing in a real God. And at least your conscience is being honest with itself. God, you really, I'm not righteous. And if my faith is measured by my righteousness, Luther knew all too well, I'm ruined. And so he's angry at God as a monk. And he says, I said, isn't it enough that we miserable sinners lost for all eternity because of original sin are oppressed by every kind of calamity through the Ten Commandments? In other words, the Ten Commandments just remind me every day of just how screwed up I am and how messed up I am. And I don't, and especially if you interpret the Ten Commandments the way Jesus did, man, if you don't want to get under the burden, don't read the Beatitudes and don't read the Sermon on the Mount because he tells you that, hey, if you really understood the Ten Commandments, it's not just the outward stuff that you do. But it's the outward stuff you don't do. And it's not just the outward stuff generally, it's the inward part of the person that's also matter. Even if you hate your brother, you've committed murder, he said. Oh my God. So listen to what this, this honest man is saying, and I hope you're so honest. Why does God keep heaping sorrows upon sorrow through the gospel? Can you believe that? The gospel was the source of his calamity and his, and his pain. Why? Because the gospel was being described to him in his day as you must believe. In true belief, saving faith is measured by its merit, by its works. It's attached to it. This was how I was raging with wild and disturbed conscience, said Luther. I constantly badgered St. Paul about that spot in Romans 1 and anxiously wanted to know what he meant. Well, thank God he kept reading and he came to chapter 3. In chapter 3, the whole question turned on this idea of God's righteousness revealed. Remember, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. This word righteousness, as we have seen, could mean I'm screwed or I'm blessed. And in a construct where faith is measured by merits, I am screwed. But then, thank God, he read on. Having read in chapter 1, verse 18, about the wrath of God, this righteousness that is revealed through the wrath of God that is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men, and that goes on now for two and a half chapters, he finally gets to chapter 3. And here it is. But now, verse 21, but now, it's true, the righteousness of God has come through wrath, chapter 1, 18 through chapter 3, 20, and verse 20. Verse 21 was the earth-breaking discovery for Luther. Here it is. Listen carefully. 
But now, that means there's some other way for righteousness to be revealed. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from keeping the law. Remember, we are made righteous through faith in Christ. And he just read that faith in Christ somehow is not measured by how much we keep the law. And then he goes on, verse 22. For the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe there is no distinction. Remember that Reformation question? What is the ground upon which the consciences of people must rest their hope for salvation? Luther discovered the answer, faith alone. Faith alone. Listen to what he goes on here. Notice how it works itself out. It goes on to say this in verse 23. For all are justified. Now remember that word justified is, y'all could say righteousified. I make up words all the time, right? Righteousified, made righteous before God. That's all justification is. Righteousness of God has been revealed. Against all godliness, it's going to bring wrath and justice. But against the righteous, it's going to bring mercy and grace and all that we've been hoping for. And Luther's reading a passage that tells him, verse 23, for all are righteousified, made righteous. No, this is really incredible if you can get into his head. Before God, by his grace as a through the redemption that is now in Jesus Christ. Luther's going, could this be true? But he's a smart guy, as you are. But how is that justice, God? I mean, how can it be justice to pardon someone who's not, who's guilty? I mean, pardon seems so weak. Like, oh, well, poof, poof, don't worry about this. Ah, we'll just look the other way here. That's kind of what pardon feels like. And so Luther's still grappling with this. I'm really telling you his story. And he's grappling and saying, how, how can you do that? How can I believe that? That's not even believable, God, that you could make me righteous just as a gift, even though I'm really unrighteous. Don't make sense. And here's what he keeps reading. How did God do this? What was the answer to this whole thing? He says it's by this idea of propitiation. It says, by Christ, remember I just read that, whom God put forward as a satisfaction of his righteousness by his blood to be received by faith alone. Now, what is Paul talking about? I want you to imagine going into a temple in the Old Testament. And in that temple, there would have been this holy of holy place where there'd be like this, this chest. And in that chest would be, oh my God, the law of All that it represented under those ten titles, if you will, or commandments that spoke into what righteousness you could be and all that. But on top of that was this, what's called this mercy seat. In the Greek Old Testament, the word for mercy seat is the same Greek that's used right here for propitiation. Paul's envisioning that through Jesus Christ we have come to a mercy seat. Now why is that so important? Because if you know anything about the temple worship in the Old Testament, God wanted so desperately to bring us to mercy that he gave us this pictorial ritual that eventually would be fulfilled and satisfied by, by the Messiah. And here's what it looked like. If you were the priest, 
once a year on the Day of Atonement of Satisfaction, that word, atoning for our sin, to satisfy the righteousness of God for our unrighteousness by atonement. There would be this Day of Atonement. The priest would first go before the, the Holy of Holies and they would slay a bull, a perfect bull, one who was without, without blemish. Now that's obviously symbolic, a righteous bull. And this righteous bull would be slain and the blood would be sprinkled all over the priest. This is a gruesome looking thing here. It ain't pretty. And it was symbolic of his being made righteous by the blood of this bull that was righteous. And then he would get to walk into the Holy of Holies where God and his majesty was to be, 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 to be dwelling. And there on that mercy seat would be a blemished, unblemished lamb. He would be stuck over the horns that are on this seat, and there would be blood and unfold. This is a gross scene, and it would be burnt. God's wrath upon the righteous substitute. Now, you're asking me, Pastor, I, I don't get it, though. I mean, how can the righteous substitute be a just thing for God to do, to put the wrath on that righteous substitute instead of putting it on me? That's not fair. Well, the best analogy that I can give you is you, you've heard maybe of a power of attorney. You ever heard of that? It's this idea that, that in a legal construct, in a legal situation, we have what's called federal headship. It's a federal covenantal way of relating to the law. And if you give someone a power of attorney, often people do it uh, when they go to war, if they think they may die, they do it if they're sick and they may die or whatever. They want someone who has the legal right to speak and act for them. And the judge will agree to grant this person power of attorney. If you, most of you are young, you probably haven't done anything like that yet, but you will do that probably someday. You know, or someone will ask you to do it for them. Where you're given the legal personhood of that other person before the court of law. And so that's basically what's happening in a covenant contract legal way of thinking about our salvation. God is giving this symbolic righteous lamb and this symbolic righteous bull a kind of power of attorney, but we all know that the righteous lamb and the righteous bull are not in themselves the deal. All through the Old Testament, we see from, from Adam and Eve on that this represented this, this seed of a woman who would be sacrificed and whose robe would clothe those who were covered by his sacrifice, by faith, with the righteousness of that sacrifice. I mean, this, this, if you're really following what I'm saying, this is endearing. I mean, how much does God want you to see salvation? How, how much, what did God do in order to make sure you don't miss mercy? He wants you to have it so badly. For thousands of years, he put together this very dramatic way of worshiping God. So that every time the people of God would worship, they would remember that the way that they're made righteous with God is not by examining their own righteousness in order to gain God's favor, but to examine the righteousness of, of, of this substitute and its righteousness, who had been granted, quote, power of attorney in order that that person might speak and act on my behalf. 
and therefore I receive his righteousness. He receives my unrighteousness in this divine transaction. Well, that's what Luther discovered, and he finally went, aha. You see that faith is not faith measured by merit. It's faith is measured by simply wanting and receiving the gift of a power of attorney transaction on your behalf who is made by one who is blameless when you're not blameless, Jesus Christ. Isn't that cool? This is all worked out with Luther. And so look at what he does. Let me just tell you the story of Luther a little bit. Um, let me get back there. I lost it. I was so busy pushing things here. So, so let me just let me close with this amazing story again. I want to get it back to Luther, but I'm going to bring it home to you. So Luther's story began with his profound sincerity of conscience, which led to a crisis of conscience, as I've said, that could only relieve itself by rediscovering the gospel. His crisis in conscience, it seems to have begun soon after his ordination as a monk. It was the moment he'd been waiting for. His father was, he talks about how his father was out in the audience watching in this first communion service that he was going to administer as a, as, a, as, a, as a priest, as were his fellow monks. Now it was time for Martin to offer his first mass, and he was overwhelmed with the solemnity of the event. He led the congregation, saying, quote, we offer unto thee the living, the true, and the eternal God. And right there, as the story tells, he froze. He couldn't get it. Later, he wrote about this event, and he, these are his words. He said, As these words, at these words, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such majesty, seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly king? Who am I that I should lift up mine eyes or raise my hands to a divine king? Oh, that we had such a big picture of God in our Oh, wouldn't that humble us? Who are we, O oh man, O oh mortal? See, he was aware of that. Who am I before a God if there is a God? And then he goes on. Who am I that I should lift up mine eyes or raise my hands to the divine man? For I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I am speaking to a living and eternal true God. He'd gotten a glimpse of the truth holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the power of God. This is the God who, who holds in his hand the measure of my life, how long it will live, how long it won't. He's the one, not my professors, not my, my presidents, not my teachers, not my parents, not my friends, not the economist, not the military general. This is the guy that really matters when it comes to life and death and everything in between. He knew that to his credit. And he got this glimpse, and the glimpse of truth about the holiness of God would change him forever. He goes on to say this, but I, a blameless monk that I was, felt that God, before God I was a sinner with an extremely troubled conscience, and I've already read that. Yeah, I greatly longed, he said, to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. Nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. 
He says, night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just or the righteous shall live by faith. And then, he says, I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer, that means mere, like nothing else added, sola, shola grace, by mere mercy. You know, when I'm holding this thing up here, it goes everywhere. Oh, what a great quote I'm running. Then I grasp the justice of God is that right by which through grace, sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. So I want to ask you very simply, have you had that kind of, of experience in your life? Have you felt and experienced that kind of rebirth where you had the aha moment? Really, it's sheer mercy. So let's get to this question about faith. What is it? This is a big question right here. Nobody's debating, must I have faith in order to become a Christian? What is faith? Is faith known by your examining your works? I would say most people, that's what they think, even today. We're right back where they were. Well, if you really had faith, and off you go. Now, how much love is going to be enough for you to get that one link out of that chain that says your salvation rests upon your works? How much love of your neighbor? What will you be tempted to do? Well, one way you'll do it is the Pharisee way, and you'll say, well, I'm not so bad as that guy. Oh, boy, I'm, I'm out. It's a relative right. But really? See, Luther understood my righteousness is being compared to God's righteousness, not my neighbor's. Well, that's one way to do it. The other way to do it is, is you know, just to, to kind of try to beat myself up and make atonement for myself. But that becomes a work of atoning by cutting myself down all the time. You know, I'm really a bad person. And da, 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 Trying to make myself feel a little better just by making myself feel worse about my sin. See, Luther found something here, and I hope every one of us has found it as well. It's really clear. Grace is described in Scripture as receiving and resting on the gift of forgiveness. See, faith in who? In my power of atonement, Jesus Christ. One who is unblemished, God appointed to represent me as being both human and divine in the transaction of righteousification so that in my, in my power of attorney's relationship with Jesus Christ, his righteousness is given to me. Therefore, when the righteousness of God is revealed in this great day of salvation that the Old New Testament talks about, it'll be a day where I'll be declared and if you really believe that, I'm going to tell you the difference between them. Now, this isn't what you, don't get me wrong, the same power that gave you the gift of faith. Remember, if you want, how do you know if, if, if you have faith? Well, just start, first start asking, do you want it? Then ask. That's how you get it. 
And by the way, you won't want it except that God has already given you the want in your heart by a new nature to want it. It's never dependent on you. The whole thing depends on God and his sovereignty. Remember, knock and it'll be open. Ask, you shall receive. There's no qualifications there. And trust the promise of God that when you ask, you get it. You receive it. And now what you're going to find is that the same power that gave you the power to believe in Jesus Christ is going to give you the power more and more to turn away from sin and to live a more righteous life. But not perfected in this life. That awaits our glory. And here's another thing it's going to do. Full circle, it's going to bring you back to this place where you're going to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Well, I boast in the gospel. And you will think of your friends and your colleagues and your whoever else you have as associations, and you'll think, man, they stink. They could ever tell of the gospel. It's the way that they're going to get this great salvation and justice that we've all been praying for in our world that's so obviously worn out and decayed. And you're going to find a new boldness to talk to your friends and say, you know, let's just talk about this today, Bob. This, this could really be true. Can we just talk about this? And you'd find this kind of confidence to want to talk to people about it. But again, it's not faith that makes you, it's not your, your confidence to talk to people is not then faith. Don't, that's not what you're being saved by. It's just you won't be able to stop yourself from doing it. And so I, let's, let's, as we come to this table, let's think about these things. Let's really think about what's being offered here. Jesus Christ was present. And he knew you and I needed confirmation every week of our lives. Confirmation is really too good to be true. That he is offering to you the blood of atonement, the mercy seat of God in Jesus Christ. And to receive him as your substitute is all that's required for you to be assured and set free from any fear of condemnation. Praise be to God.